Good morning. <coughs> we are having a lot of fun here if you're watching online or listening. Uh, our our pre-church discussions, right? Yeah. Well, it's the second Sunday of Advent, that anticipated coming as we celebrate Christ's birth, and the, the lights are up, the candles are lit. Kendall gave us a great, wonderful surprise Advent message this morning, and Ellen did it last week, and we don't know who will be next week, but it should be fun. It's always always exciting for, for Advent surprises, right? So um, the lights are out, and they're up around us as we celebrate Christmas, and we want to remember at this time, as we spend this time focusing back on Christ, that the light of Christ shines brighter in us than it does in all the lights that we see that are up around the city or in our homes right now, that that light of Christ radiates through us to all the world, this world in darkness and sin, that we are called to, to be that light unto the world. And I think at no much of, no more of a better time than Christmas time, right? I mean, people decorate, they love the lights, so let's just let the light shine. So we are in our second Sunday of Advent, that celebrated coming of Christ once again, the about the anticipated birth of Jesus and how he changed our lives in his birth, not only for now, and not only 2,000 years ago, but for all eternity. And we are going back in this Advent season to some of the basics of Christianity that uh, most Christians often, all, often know, just they, they don't focus on that, they look for something more, but it's always good to go back to the basics and today we unpack the birth of Jesus in the idea of what's called the incarnation. Now, incarnation is one of those nice church words, right? That if you're in church, you hear the word incarnation, you're like, well, that's a cool word. I'll learn to say that and sound really educated and theological. And it simply means that God took his son Jesus in godly form and put him in the flesh in human form. The word incarnation literally means to take on flesh. And that's what Christ did for, for the incarnation that God became mankind. God became one of us, fully God and yet fully human. And I don't know if you've been in church or out of church, but if you haven't already heard, that event of God becoming mankind is really a pretty big deal. I mean, it's huge because it's never happened before and it's never happened since. And we can't forget that miracle and that wonder of God himself becoming flesh incarnate with mankind, with the creation. That's part of why Christmas is such an important day for God's people. Because that's the day we celebrate and remember Christ's birth, his incarnation, God becoming man, to come into the world to relate with us, to show that he understands us, to cry with us, to laugh with us, to feed us, to do all the things that we go through in life, that we have a God, a Savior, that absolutely 100% can relate with us. It's not like this distant thing where there's, there's God here and man here, and it's like, well, he's up there like with the Romans and the Greeks that... The gods just made these decisions. In the form of Christ, he lived for some 33 years and went through everything, every temptation, every struggle, just like we have gone through. Even puberty. Can you imagine that? Jesus going through puberty? That had to be kind of interesting. But he went through all that, that he could be our high priest for one thing. He could be our savior. And as we come to him in our times of need or our times of joy, 
that he could understand. He could empathize and relate. Christy and I were talking uh, yesterday, as a matter of fact, with her work, and she was sharing about the imagery of sympathy and empathy. And sympathy is seeing someone maybe stuck in a hole down there where they can't reach out in this, this abandoned well and they're stuck down there. And sympathy is kind of walking by and looking in that well and seeing them and saying, hey, hope everything turns out okay. I'm praying for you. And walking on. Empathy, on the other hand, is walking by that well and looking down and seeing that person and crawling down in the well with the person, putting your arm around them and saying, and looking up and saying, Man, this is a tough place to be in, isn't it? This is hard. And God became man. That Jesus is our Savior and our Lord could empathize with us, especially in our time of need. To understand what goes on in our hearts and minds. And not just be able to say, I get it, I understand you, but really to be able to say, I get it. I understand you. Let me walk with you in this time of need. Last week, we talked about the unfailing love of God, that unmerited grace as we, we tackled the wonderful issue of sin on Advent number one, that we have to deal with sin to realize what God has saved us from, right? We can't leave that out of the Advent or the Christmas season because that's why Christ came to, to relieve that sin from us. And it was through Jesus that God gave us the gift of salvation, of not only just covering our sins, but literally doing what? Wiping out our sins, past, present, and future, once and for all. And that's one of the greatest gifts that God has ever given us, but not the greatest gift. The greatest gift is who we're talking about this morning, which is whom? Jesus the Christ, the very Son of God, God himself, come to us. So let's talk a little bit more about Jesus and this incarnation where God became flesh and, and God took on flesh upon himself. Well, if you're here last week, we talked about Isaiah chapter 1. And if you want to turn in your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1 here in a little bit. Matthew 1 and Isaiah 7. But last week we looked at Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18. And the old prophet says this, Though your sins were like scarlet, they shall be what? White as snow. And we talked about the fact that in that time when Isaiah wrote this prophecy, that to have that crimson color on cloth, the cloth was literally dipped into the dye. And the dye didn't just cover the cloth, the dye infiltrated the cloth and could no longer be separated from that cloth. And that's how our lives were with sin. But God brought this redemptive plan in with Jesus Christ, that all that sin was literally part of who we were before Christ. That through Jesus, God does the miracle, that Jesus is the catalyst that removes that sin, removes that stain, that dye, and makes us once again white as snow. Now, I'm sure you all have heard, I know Richard's always excited about this, that Christmas is coming, right? It's here once again this year as a surprise. Now, I'm not going to tell you how many shopping days are left till Christmas, because that's not what Christmas is about. So you're off the hook for that one. But we do want to read about the first Christmas, or what I like to call Christmas, because it's about Christ in this season. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 23, I'll be reading out of New American Standard, tells us about this incarnation gift of God. And it says this, 
Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived of her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be a child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God, what? With us. I read that passage throughout the year, but especially at Christmas season, I think, you know, that's an unbelievable thing. And we as Christians just kind of accept that and don't think about it. But imagine when the prophet Isaiah wrote this, and a virgin, we all know what a virgin is, right? A virgin <laughs> shall be with child from the Holy Spirit, and shall bear the Son of God, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, when Isaiah prophet lived in this time, he didn't have to deal with the, quote, wrong political correctness of the time where men can now be pregnant and have babies and all this other crazy stuff that's going on in our so-called educated society. I mean, it was pretty black and white. If you were a woman, you had babies. If you were a man, you did not, right? But here Isaiah comes and he says, the virgin shall be with child. Now imagine being a shepherd or a townsperson and hearing that from the prophet and you're going, well, that's pretty wild. And even if you think of it today in our society, it's still a crazy thought, isn't it? That a virgin would give birth? I mean, really? That would be like pulling off a miracle, right? And that's exactly the point of God. That this is only something that God could do. And as we looked at last week in the Gospel of Luke, as, as, as the angel Gabriel speaks to Mary, when he tells her what is going on with her body, that she will bear the Son of Christ, she's like, how can this be? I mean, even she questioned the fact of a virgin, me being with child, that just doesn't equate with everything that I know and understand. And Gabriel tells her in Luke 137, for nothing is impossible with God. And that's where the miracle of Christmas and the Bible comes in. Comes in with the incarnation of God, God in the flesh among men. And it's a central thought in the Christian religion. And in fact, if you look at all the religions of the world, Christianity is the only one where God becomes one of us. It doesn't happen in the Roman culture, the Greek culture, the Hindu culture, the Muslim culture. It happens in no other religion except for Christianity. And that's where I think a lot of the other religions in the world go on, look at Christianity going like, you guys are kind of off the beaten path, right? And we're like, no, we're actually on the narrow path. We are the only one that says God became man in the incarnation. 
God did the miracle of a virgin giving birth to the Son of God and becoming one of us. And it was prophesied thousands of years before it happened. Again, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, we read this as our verse for the week. The prophet Isaiah once again says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin shall be with child and will give birth to a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel. What a crazy thing to hear. I think that's how the world looks at us Christians even now, because again, we accept it after being Christian, right? We accept the, the, the birth of Christ in the Virgin. We accept the raising of Christ that we celebrate on Easter. We accept the gift of salvation where God wipes away our sin, past, present, and future. But for those outside who are trying to deal like Spock in a very logical manner, a worldly way of thinking, to sell, tell someone that, hey, the Son of God came through a virgin, they're looking at you like, what? Sounds pretty goofy, doesn't it? Almost as crazy as some guy building a boat and saving the world. Almost as crazy as some prophet running from God and being swallowed by a big fish and then vomited out on a beach and going and preaching one of the greatest gospel messages that turned a whole town to salvation. It's crazy stuff that we celebrate, isn't it, Christians, when we really think about it? <coughs> but God does crazy stuff doesn't he? I love what Isaiah says. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to give you an inkling into the miraculous. When the Savior comes, this is going to how, how it's going to happen. This is how it's going to go down. And no one will ever be able to repeat this in history. Not Houdini, not David Copperfield. No one is going to be able to pull this off that a virgin will give birth and you will call his name Emmanuel. Now again, if you've been in church for a while, we know about the incarnation now, which means to take on flesh, that God became flesh. But as Isaiah says, you'll call his name Emmanuel. And what does Emmanuel mean? God with us. That Christ came and dwelt with us where the Old Testament prophecy becomes New Testament reality with the birth of Christ. The incarnation and Emmanuel take place, the word becomes flesh, and God dwells among us. And in this Christmas season, we also realize that God refers to himself as something called the word, right? You've heard that. God is the logos, the word. In John 1, 1, it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John 1.14 goes on to say, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? What is dwelt among us? What do we call that? <coughs> Emmanuel. And John says, And the Word became flesh, incarnation, and dwelt among us, Emmanuel, and we saw his glory. Glory as only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in Revelation 19.3, it states this, he, God, is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name will be called the Word of God. So we've got incarnation, God become flesh. We've got Emmanuel, God with us, and now we have the Word. Why would God refer to himself as the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us? 
Well, theologians are kind of, in a theological term, befundled by that because God doesn't exactly tell us. Do you know that God doesn't have to give us all the answers just because we want them? Right? You ever pray and say, God, just show me, give me wisdom, help me understand it. And God says, mm -mm, I just want you to have faith. I want you to believe. I want you to believe. Many theologians think that God refers to himself as the word, one, because Jesus is himself wisdom personified. In other words, wisdom in reality, in real life. We talk about wisdom, discernment, understanding, and we talk about sometimes as, you know, having great wisdom is having this great mind that has all these thoughts. But as the word, as Jesus is God himself, he is wisdom incarnate. Makes sense? He is wisdom living and active and breathing with us. Theologians also go on to say that the word is God's communication to the world. And who was God's communication to the world with his message? Jesus. That's why most theologians believe God is referred to as his word. That as God speaks to us, he says, this is Jesus, my son. He'll give you the message of salvation and hope. Again, John goes on to say in John 1.14, and the word became flesh, which is what? Incarnation. And the word dwelt among us, which is what? Emmanuel. And here's the beautiful part. God does his part. Incarnation, impossible. Emmanuel, with us. And then God gives us a blessing and a gift of Jesus. And it says, and we saw his glory. We saw his glory. Where do you see that exemplified with the birth of Christ at first? With the shepherds, right? Shepherds are out in the field keeping their flocks by night, right? And an angel of the Lord appeared before them, and the glory of God shone about them, and says, For, un, for unto you, today in the city of David, a what has been born? A Savior. The glory of God was given to mankind, and that's the part we get to see. And in this Advent season, I hope that as we deal with these issues of incarnation and Emmanuel, that we take this verse of John 1.14 and we realize we get to see the glory of God. Because God's already done the miraculous. And he saves his glory for us to see, to be revealed in the miracles that he does that can never be repeated we get to see his glory it says that we saw his glory glory of the only begotten of the father and who is the only begotten of the father jesus who is full of grace and full of truth in this advent season we are reminded that as god has done these things that are impossible for mankind that nothing is impossible for whom for God. And when he does that, he comes and he says, I've already done the heavy lifting for you. I want you just to have the icing on the cake. Right? Kino loves the icing on the cake. He'll eat the cake too, but the icing is really good. That's the best part, right? I mean, that's why we really eat cake is not for cake, but for what? For icing, you know? And God says, I've done the heavy lifting. Now here, you just see 
the glory of God in my only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. And to bask in that, as the Old Testament talks about it as the Shekinah glory of God, that when Moses came down from receiving the Ten Commandments, the Shekinah glory of God that had surrounded and engulfed him and dwelt within him as he came to the very presence of God is radiating through him so that when he comes down, the people see the dude and he is glowing, right? And they're like, Moses, you need to cover up because you are shining too much. Man, wouldn't that be a compliment as a Christian? People come up to you and like, hey, you are shining as God stuff way too much. You need to tone it down and put a dimmer switch on there, right? That we get to see the glory of God as he dwells with us in Emmanuel. These Christmas lights are beautiful, but they remind us that the light of Christ shines within us. God actually calls us the light of the world as we radiate his glory from within us. John says that word, which is God's communication to us through Jesus, came, became incarnate, became flesh, dwelt among us in Emmanuel, did the miracle through Mary. And he says that baby grew and he went through childhood. He eventually became a man. And he was with us. He was with us. John Piper, a pastor and theologian, writes this about this issue of the word, God's communication, God's gospel message to us dwelling among us. He says this, for the word, the word for dwelt, you know, that's a common word we use, right? You go around saying dwelt all the time, right? The word dwelt among us, he says the word for dwelt is a word that means to set up a tent. Well, that's got to impact it theologically, doesn't it? What does dwelt mean? To set up a tent. Wow, my Sunday is it's awesome now. I know what dwelt means. To set up a tent. Whew, that impacts my life so theologically. I am just motivated, right? Well, there's more. you got to get the rest of it. The word dwelt in dwelt among us means to set up a tent in Greek. And John Piper says, I think what pitching a tent with us implies is this. God wants to be on familiar terms with us. He wants to be close. He wants a lot of interaction. If you come into a community and build a huge palace with a wall around it, it says one thing about your desires to be with the people. That you're there, but you really don't desire to be with them. But if you pitch a tent in my backyard, You'll probably use my bathroom. You'll eat at my table. You'll see my messy house. And you'll understand me. That's why God became human. He came to pitch a tent in our human backyard so that they would have lots of dealings with us. About a year, year and a half ago, Tara did a scary thing. She went backpacking with the porters for a week. And we warned her, we're like, Tara, when you go backpacking for a week with us, you're gonna learn things that you never wanna know and you won't be able to get out of your head. Because when you go backpacking, we're all in the same tent, none of us shower, we're all eating the same food, we're all pumping the same water, you're there together, working together, living together, eating together, taking that little orange shovel off to do something, well, not that much together, but to do something right, you get to know each other a lot. 
mean, there's no shaving of the face, there's no shaving of the legs, there's no deodorant. You really get to know people, kind of like going camping. And that's what Christ did. He said, I don't want to just build a palace and be in your community. I want to put a tent in your backyard. In essence, I want to live with you. I want to walk into your house and see what life is really like when company's not coming over. I want to see how funky you look when you get out of bed in the morning. I want to see how tired you are when it's evening and you just want to go to bed. I want to see how you burn the pancakes. I want to see how you deal with issues in life. That is what it means for God to dwell with us. Does it make sense? And that does impact <coughs> us theologically, doesn't it? That God doesn't just want to be like, hey, I'm here, guys. Have a good time. I'll see you when you get to heaven. He's like, no, I want to empathize with you. I want to stand with you and walk with you and talk with you. I want to be with you. I want to know everything there is to know about you. And I want you to know everything I'll allow you to know about me. I want to have a relationship. A relationship. You see, it's personal with Jesus. Do you know that? Your relationship with him, your salvation with him, your Emmanuel with Jesus is personal because he desires to be with you and to see his glory. Jesus wants to eat with us as he invites us to dine at his table in communion. He wants to fill us with his presence that the word of God says that when we worship, God indwells within that worship. He wants to be with us in those dark, quiet places. As he says, when you pray, don't pray out in public like the Pharisees do for attention. You go into a private place, into a closet, to a hidden room, and pray to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus wants to see you in your quietest, darkest places to be with you. Isn't that amazing? It's really cool when you think about it. This whole deal of dwelling with us, incarnation, Emmanuel, God doing the miracle and saying, now I want you to see my glory. To enjoy that presence of my glory is pretty amazing. And this is what sets Christianity and Jesus Christ apart from every other religion in our world. God became us. He is the Savior, but he also has intimate first-hand knowledge of each one of you. Into the point that in the New Testament, it tells us that Jesus, God, even knows when a sparrow falls from the sky, and knows the number of hairs on your head. I'll bet you don't even know that. Mine's getting less, so it's easier to count, but to have someone know you that intimately is an amazing thing. That Jesus even knows the very number of hairs upon your head. That he would pay that much attention to you and I. We move on and in Hebrews it talks a lot about God being a high priest. Remember the priest interceded between God and mankind. That during the times of Christ the priest would come in and make atonement. 
the forgiving of sins for the people, that it would cover them for a year with, with the scapegoat and the sacrificial lamb. And the high priest would come in, and he would be that intercessory person between God and between man. And Hebrews tells us about this issue of atonement, which is, atonement is another Christian word, which simply means the cleansing of impurity, that the priest would atone for us for a while that our sins would be covered. But Hebrews talks about a high priest that would atone for us to cleanse us from all impurity, which, what impurity, what do we call it? What three-letter word? Sin. He would cleanse us, he would atone for us, once and for all. We read in the book of Hebrews chapter 4 these words. It says, Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness. Haven't we just talked about that? That he came to empathize with us? But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Can you unpack that? statement in Hebrews for a second it says that we have we're not going to get we're not going to earn we don't go by we already have something a high priest who has even gone before us and ascended into heaven already that's what we celebrate in Easter right the resurrection of Christ after three days in a grave and it says it is Jesus the Son of God therefore let us hold firmly the faith that we possess. Now, some of you that have been to our camps know what holding firmly looks like, right? Let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. In other words, if you profess faith in Christ, this says because of the high priest, you can hold on to that with confidence. In fact, we know that Jesus relates with us and empathizes with us with our weakness because he's been tempted in every way too, although he didn't sin. That's the one difference between us and God. But then it goes on to say this. Let us approach God's throne of grace with fear. Is that what it says? It says, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence, not fear. Sometimes we have this picture image of coming before the throne of God in fear. Remember back in the 80s, there were some wonderful Christian movies that came out to introduce salvation and they kind of rallied off the old hellfire and brimstone sermons of the 1800s and it caused people to come to Jesus in fear because of what they would have to face. But it says after salvation that we have this high praise that as we come to the throne of God now, we do not come in what? Fear. But we come rather in another amazing totally contradictory word which is called confidence that Hebrews tells us you come to the throne of God with confidence you know what that looks like we all know what it looks like to see fear right heads down kind of you know fetal position coming like oh no 
bolt of lightning, you know, I'm going to, I'll be gone in a little bit of ashes. But this says you walk in to the throne of God with confidence because your high priest has atoned for you. In other words, what it implies is you have a place specifically before the throne of God. You belong there. And you don't need to worry about being there because God, through Jesus, has already established you should be there at the throne of God's grace because of salvation. Isn't that cool? That we don't fear God's throne of grace because we're like, hey, I got a place there. That's where I belong. Why should I fear? Because I'm only going to where God has designed that I should belong in salvation. That's pretty cool, isn't it? You belong at the throne of God. God dwelt with us. He ate with us. He walked with us. He wept with us. He empathized with our weakness. He understands our temptations. God is awesome, isn't he? And God says, you now, through all that I've done, all the heavy lifting, as you come to see the glory of God, you approach the throne of grace with what? Confidence. Because you belong there. In other words, what God is saying is, because of what I've done and in salvation through Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, you belong in relationship with God. That's really the Advent message, isn't it? As we anticipate the coming of Christ, why do we anticipate it? Because we belong with him because of what has God's done. That's pretty cool. So what do we do this second Sunday of Advent with all this? What do we do with the miracle of the word became flesh through a virgin? What do we do with incarnation? What do we do with Emmanuel? What do we do with atonement? What do we do with this confidence that we belong to the throne of grace? Very simple. We embrace it. We embrace it. The Westminster Shorter Catechism tells us that the goal of mankind is to enjoy, to glorify God and enjoy his presence forever. And that means we have to embrace the goodness of God. That we don't just sit back like we're outside of a shiny store window at Christmas like a little kid looking in saying, oh, I wish I could have that and that and that because we're looking through the window that we can't have it. Instead, it's like the owner of the shop comes out and says, come in, everything in the store is yours. Now go play. Wouldn't that have been a great Christmas present, right? I remember going through the Sears and JCPenney's catalogs when they used to send those out that were that thick, and I would take that Sharpie marker and I would mark everything for days of what I hoped I could get for Christmas, and they never came. But I had the catalog to save for the whole year, right? And God's saying, I've done all this. Now come into the candy store and eat. Come into the toy shop and enjoy and play. Come into my presence, into my glory, embrace it. And as I've done all the work for you, enjoy the glory of God in real life. That's what we come to Advent about. That we get to cherish in the glory of God because Jesus has made it that way because of his desire to be with us. 
That's the miracle of Christmas, isn't it? The miracle is simply this. God desires to be with you and to bless you with his glory. So we close with this. We've said it many times. It takes 13 muscles to frown. Don't overwork yourself. It only takes 13 muscles to smile. So smile and enjoy the glory of God this season. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus, for the miracle of a virgin giving birth, for the, the miracle that sets us apart from every other religion in the world that you became incarnate that you became Emmanuel and you dwelt with us and you set up shop with us to know us and that you allow us to bask in your glory. God, we give you so much praise and thanks this morning. We thank you for reminding us of the giftedness that you give us, Father, through your Son, Jesus the Christ. And we pray that this Advent season that we would purposely bask in your glory. In Jesus' name.